Welcome to Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about the Mi'kmaq people and the Halibut First Nation. I'm Glenn Wheeler. We're back in the studio after a trip to Flat Bay for the annual powwow. Thanks to the Bay St. George Mi'kmaq Cultural Revival Committee for giving us such a rich and well-organized event. This week on the show, we're covering two topics. One of them is Mi'kmaq petroglyphs. Petroglyphs are engravings made in stone and they're found around the world. But there's a special Mi'kmaq history of petroglyphs. And you're going to hear about that history from someone whose name you're very familiar with if you're a regular listener, Marcus Goss, whose work we use in the Mi'kmaq Matters logo. As Marcus will tell us, Mi'kmaq petroglyphs are an important reference in his own work, and he'll be talking and teaching about that history and technique in two remaining petroglyph nights. More on that later. But first, the latest lawsuit. There are already two in the works. There's the case filed by the Mi'kmaq First Nation Assembly of Newfoundland, Dave Wells' applicant. And a former lawyer living in Calgary has filed a lawsuit on his own behalf. But there's something different about the newest lawsuit filed by Jerry Brake, a former resident of Cornerbrook, now living in the Ottawa area. The law firm handling the Brake matter want to convert it into a class action which means that any of the 80,000 people denied Halibu membership potentially could join the action. The law firm handling the file is Koski Minsky, a leading class action firm based in Toronto that won a $50 million settlement for former students of residential schools in Newfoundland and Labrador. I spoke with David Rosenfeld of Koski Minsky about who's eligible to join, how the process works, and when he expects a decision from the Federal Court of Canada. The proposed class proceedings were seeking to represent anybody who has been rejected through the program. The the class proceeding is alleging that the 2013 supplementary agreement um, is is improper and invalid and shouldn't be applied, and that people should be um, reviewed and assessed under the 2008 agreement, just like they were doing beforehand. So that would include people with the self-identification issues that don't have a right of appeal currently, and it would also deal with the people um, who, who, under the point system, were, were rejected through the program, and the people who, who had um, membership status and now have had that membership status revoked. And uh, so in terms of remedy, uh, I was reading the documents, and uh, as I see in, your, in the, um, the document uh, asking that it be certified as a class proceeding, uh, are you asking, are you seeking financial remedy? Uh, it's two two components, I guess, to the remedy that's being sought, which is, uh, first is is the rejection of the 2013 supplementary agreement, uh, and then reassessing uh, those individuals um, who were assessed only under the 2013 agreement to be reassessed under the, under the 2008 agreement. Um, in addition, there would be monetary damages for for claims against the federal government for uh, claims for breach of fiduciary duty owed to to this group of individuals and for charter violations um, that we are alleging exist. Right, and would those damages be based on um, based specifically on things like not having access to uh, non-insured health benefits, or would they be damages? Uh, 
over and above those uh, quantifiable uh, amounts? It would it would be um, yet to be determined, I guess is the the, the basic answer. But um, it would be on on a, one of the theories of damages on the basis of um, access to status Indianship and and the rights uh, that come along with that. And if either you're delayed as a result of this process, um, then there should be some sort of recourse in addition to um, the damages for. Uh, for the in infliction of, you know, lack of respect and, and, and treatment on the hands of a fiduciary being the federal government. Now, as you know, there are two uh, two other uh, matters have been filed in federal court, one by the uh, Mi'kmaq First Nation Assembly of Newfoundland and one by a, uh, a former lawyer acting on his own behalf. And uh, so you... Uh, you are the third uh, matter to be filed in federal court on the Halbu uh, matter. Would you expect the there be some um, coordination by the court uh, in terms of these matters, or will it be first come first serve, and the court will deal with just deal with the matters um, as they come before it? Well, I, I'm hoping that we there is some sort of coordination. It, it makes sense for there to be coordination and for people who want to raise the issues to have those issues determined in a in in the same uh, setting or at the same time as opposed to whoever can get there first under the federal court's uh, rules. So um we will be trying to to have the 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 decisions the merits decisions being the decisions about the agreements etc being heard at the same time. That doesn't appear to be what is happening right now, but uh we're certainly going to try and and there's always um the possibility of the parties cooperating in terms of process uh, as well. Mm -hmm. uh, now, as you know, the appeals process is uh, supposed to be complete in uh, 2018. There would, uh, if the if things went according to plan, there would be a final uh, membership list, and uh, and life went on fold. How about uh, and I guess this this might be probable. How about if the litigation were still pending and there were no decision from the uh, from the federal court on any of these matters, and the list uh, was finalized? Would there be um, would there be an issue there? Would you be asking for a delay in the finalization of the list, or would you have to deal with that after the fact? Yeah, I, I think we'd cross that bridge uh, if we came to it, uh, but I, I think it's likely. That a decision on on the the issues that would impact um, the process will be determined before that time frame is up. Uh huh. Whether yeah, whether it's a final decision by a, a court of appeal or not, um, it would it's not clear. But I, I I'm I'm optimistic that a decision on the merits of the issues will be addressed before that time frame. Now, let me ask you a little bit about uh, class actions and the nuts and bolts and how they work. Right, so there's there's a couple of things about class proceedings. One one is you, you don't join a class proceeding per se. Um, the class, uh, you have to go to court and a judge has to approve whether the, the proceeding that you want to uh, make a class proceeding is appropriate to go by way of a class proceeding. At that time, they, they certify what uh, the class is going to be. They define the class as to who it would be, and that class then gets notice 
uh, of that class proceeding and has an opportunity to decide whether they want to be um, represented by that class proceeding or, or not. And they can then uh, choose to what's called opt out of the class proceeding. If you, if you take a step to opt yourself out, then you're no longer part of the class proceeding. The class proceeding is not impacting your rights. But if you do nothing and, you, and, and do not opt out, then the class proceeding does um, impact those class members' rights. Right. So uh, it's not a question of joining or not joining. At some point in time, it would be a question of taking yourself out if the class proceeding is, is uh, approved. Right. So uh, people who, uh, who, uh, who call your 1-800 number or email you uh, currently, uh, basically, they, you would keep track of those names. And once uh, you had a decision from the court on the, on the class, you would know whether those people could be uh, in the courts. Exactly. Anybody who contacts us, they would get the information about the class. We would take their information, put them on our uh, confidential list, and when that notice program happens, they would be directly contacted. Absolutely. Yes. Now, uh, as we know, uh, very often in class actions, the, everything rests on whether the matter is certified as a class action. And if it is certified, very often, uh, matters um, are resolved without further litigation. I don't necessarily agree with that that pattern in class proceedings, um, but in any event, the certification motion is an important motion for class proceedings. It defines whether the, the action proceeds on behalf of 80-some-odd thousand rejected applicants or whether it proceeds on behalf of one. So at that point, a class proceeding, uh, if it is certified, has a significant component of leverage associated with it because of the number of people that it represents. And the decision um, on the issues will be addressed for all uh, class members. So in that regard, it does provide added leverage, which is one of the benefits and one of the reasons why uh, our firm uh, um, acts in class proceedings is because it, it, it binds together or groups together individuals who have uh, a less leverage or less ability to enforce their rights puts them together as a group, and as a group, they're stronger together. And so that's what class proceedings uh, are intended to do. And in terms of resolution, uh, I can't speak to resolution before or after um, um, this proceeding has a certification motion or, or not. Um, I'm, I would guess that, that the federal government and the um, Federation of uh, Newfoundland Indians um, is going to be supporting the 2013 Supplementary Agreement. So uh, it's not clear that, that a, a direct resolution would come once the proceeding is, is certified. The current timetable puts a motion for certification in March of 2018, and you would expect um, a decision um, sometime after that. David Rosenfeld of Kosky Minsky. To register for the class action, call 1-800-315-5570 or email action at km law.ca Now for something completely different, Migma petroglyphs. Petroglyphs are visual depictions carved into the rock. They are a precious part of Migma heritage, partly a record of daily life partly a spiritual depiction of important things and events. The biggest collection is in Kejimikujik National Park in southwest Nova Scotia. Mi'kmaq artist Marcus Goss, who now lives in Stephenville, made a pilgrimage to them, 
and they changed his life. I talked to Marcus about the importance of petroglyphs in his work, and now he's sharing his passion for petroglyphs and three petroglyph nights, two of which are coming up in St. George's and Stephenville. Yeah, thanks, Glenn. Uh, I appreciate you having me on the show. I um, was hired by uh, Indian Brook First Nations uh, next to Shubenacadie, Nova Scotia. Uh, they uh, hired me to teach visual arts. And my, in my first week of school, the resource uh, department, uh, there was two uh, ladies that, uh, you know, I owe great gratitude uh, to. They, um, they taught me about um, the Mi'kmaq petroglyphs from Kejimakujig and the Mi'kmaq double curve designs. And people, the, uh, for people who don't know, is that uh, is that a park uh, in uh, in Nova Scotia, Kejimakujig? Yes, uh, Kejimakujig is a national park in Nova Scotia, mm-hmm. and um, the ladies t- told me that that was a place that I should make, uh, uh, I guess, an artistic pilgrimage to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after the full year of teaching and uh, teaching about double curve designs and uh, the Mi'kmaq star and and uh, and the curriculum, of course, uh, my wife and I decided to um, take a trip there. And uh, to our surprise, uh, when we um, went with the interpreters the, uh, at the park, um, I was under the impression that there was only probably around a hundred or so um, Mi'kmaq petroglyphs because I was used to that point uh, going on the Nova Scotia uh, Museum uh, database online, and I only thought there was probably around 100, but to my surprise, there was probably about four or 500 uh, different petroglyphs on the rocks, and I was very surprised that not all of them were on the, uh, the website. And uh, we took several pictures, and we realized there was a fish petroglyph, a vase petroglyph, and there was uh, several different moose and deer and uh, cranes. And, uh, you know, we were, you know, I, I was really intrigued that I never had seen some of these before. And, were, were, uh, these, uh, were these outside or in, in caves? Uh, what, what was the, the, the area? They call them rock outcrops, but they're little, basically like little mounds that are rocks. And they're kind of just next to the water. And um, you could tell that the Mi'kmaq, uh, you know, did a lot of canoeing around there. You can actually, um, uh, around that area, you can actually uh, rent a canoe for the day. And I thought to myself, you know, how great would it be to, you know, be back, say, 500 years and mm. and uh, to see, uh, you know, my, my Mi'kmaq ancestors, you know, carving, uh, uh, you know, petroglyphs. And uh, the way they were carved, um, you know, they are not only carved, um, you know, probably to preserve history, but they were carved with such an expressive feel to them. Um, and um, when we did our paint night uh, last night in Cornerbrook, uh, people were saying, wow, you know, uh, the way they, they painted them, they painted them with such expression, like several little linear lines and curvy lines within the animal. And it's like they wanted not only to preserve the history, uh, of maybe a, a moose hunt or a um, caribou hunt, but they also wanted to show the spirit of the animal within the uh, the petroglyph, the carving in stone. And I thought, how fabulous, you know, I thought that was, a, I, I said to myself, that's a really insightful point, you know? Yes, and do, do the historians, or does anyone who studies these petroglyphs know what was the... Uh... What was the motivation for for doing those petroglyphs? Were they ceremonial? Were they meant to record? Uh, was it just individual artistic artistic uh, 
uh, impulses on behalf of someone who had a artistic uh, spirit, maybe you, if you were, you know, if you were living 500 years ago, do we know what the uh, what the purpose of these petroglyphs was? Yeah, that's a great point, Glenn. I, I'm I'm probably going to say all of the above. I think it's uh, decorative, like a decorative aesthetic, uh, first, firstly, and then secondly, I think it uh, was to um, uh, record a historical event. Um, one of the petroglyphs is a whale. Um, I, I sometimes separate the whale uh, to, in, in my paintings to do uh, several different uh, landscapes. The, um, the original has a uh, has um, people uh, actually hunting the whale in the petroglyphs. I, w- I would probably think that it's um, uh, due to a, a whale hunt. Uh, so I think I think preserving um, history is probably, or preserving an event is probably the second um, reason for it, and probably the third is, um, you know, th- there was different things that happened that they wanted, you know, probably affected them. They, uh, they there were several different schooners and several different boats and little skiffs and stuff that they've recorded as well. There was lots of boats and schooners around, so maybe they were kind of fearful of. Uh, you know, um, trade or uh, new treaties or, you know, something like that. So mm-hmm. maybe, which is pretty interesting because there were several boat petroglyphs. And um, they did have birch bark petroglyphs, but there was uh, several schooners. And uh, there was even some kind of, like, there's even boats that resemble, like, a Viking boat and, like, Danish boats and stuff like that. So, And I know that in your, in your petroglyph uh, nights, you're using one of your one of your own pieces, Seeking Ligma Enlightenment. So uh, tell us how you, uh, you're you drawing together that history, uh, that Ligma petroglyph history, into these uh, into these uh, nights that you're having. Sure. Well, one of my first paintings uh, that I decided to uh, put the Ligma star into uh, was Seeking Ligma Enlightenment. I actually taught that in, in Indian Brook First Nations in the visual arts program. And after completing it with my students in our acrylic unit, I decided to, um, I, I had it on the easel, and a few teachers um, and the guidance counselor mentioned that I should probably try to donate it to the Art Gallery in Nova Scotia. So I just, I, you know, I was kind of fearful of it at first, and then I brought it, um, I emailed the curator, and they decided to put it in the Art Gallery in Nova Scotia. And then hmm. I thought, and uh, after talking with the, the director of the museum, uh, Ray Cohen, or Cronin, he said that uh, he liked the piece, and, you know, and it was a, great addition to the museum and I thought well that's a a direction I should maybe go and um, I started using various uh, other petroglyphs such as the crane and the whale and the caribou and I thought to myself um, you know why why not try to you know teach this to the students or to to other adults who uh, you know might enjoy learning about this and uh, you know we don't have any uh, Mi'kmaq petroglyphs that I know about on the island of Newfoundland but uh, Kedja Mikuji has quite an abundance, and I thought, wow, you know, it's a great opportunity for me to, you know, share my passion and love for them. And um, and we t- we uh, did the uh, Seeking Mi'kmaq Enlightenment painting in our session, and um, I mentioned the uh, use of uh, uh, petroglyphs and uh, um, double curve designs and several other things that they could use. And we talked about the history of the uh, the Mi'kmaq star and how it was originally seven. Uh, uh, points to represent Mi'kma'ki and uh, the different um, uh, provinces, I guess you'd call it, of 
of uh, Mi'kmaq Gee or Mi'kmaq Territory, which is like PEI, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Quebec, and Maine. But I also decided to uh, mention to them as well that the eighth point was uh, the introduction of Newfoundland, and Newfoundland was the eighth point of the uh, Mi'kmaq star. And a lot of them were very intrigued that, you know, that that was the reason why the eighth point was added. And they were really intrigued, and um, all of them actually tried to do the Mi'kmaq star. So I did a little mini introduction or tutorial on how to do the Mi'kmaq star. And a lot of them uh, got it pretty fast, and mm-hmm. I was really, really happy with it because it's, it can be tricky. And uh, we, uh, we, had a, we had a great time. Great. Well, Marcus, thanks for telling us about that, and uh, good luck in St. George's and Stephenville. Thanks, Glenn. It was a pleasure seeing you, and as we say in Migwa, Bego Muxen. It was great to see you. Artist Marcus Goss. The two upcoming Petroglyph Nights are in St. George's at 6.30 p.m. on July 27th at the Mi'kmaq Museum and in Stephenville, 6.30 p.m. on August 3rd at 90 Main Street. The $40 registration cost covers all material needed. To register, contact Tara Saunders, T. Saunders, at halibu.ca or call 634-5972. And that's it for the show. Thanks to Allison Baker for assistance here in the studio. Check us out online, migma-matters.blogspot.ca. Follow us on Twitter, listen on SoundCloud, or subscribe in iTunes. And listen on Bay of Islands Radio, boir.ca, 6 p.m. on Thursday. I'm Glenn Wheeler. Till next time.